What did you think you would do as a kid? I had to go back and check my grade six yearbook. Remember, and apparently I wanted to be a firefighter, a police officer, or a dentist. <laughs> um, do you remember like anything specific, like inspiring you to go for those things? Well, my grandfather uh, is a retired firefighter, and he had spent, I think, about 25 or 30 years on the Calgary Fire Department. So I suspect there was probably just yeah. some um, some amazement as a kid, knowing that your grandpa was a firefighter and, and hearing his stories as a kid growing up. But outside of that, I can't really point to why I wanted to be a dentist or a police officer. Mm-hmm. Do you remember your parents ever wanting you to do anything? Not in particular, no. They were pretty encouraging of kind of whatever I was interested in. So I didn't, I don't remember anything like that. I think it was really just, you know, whatever you want to do, we want you to be happy to do it. So mm-hmm. that's kind of the memories that I have. Um, once you got into high school, do you remember what you thought you were going to do? <sighs> Not 100%. Like, I had an idea that I maybe, like, wanted to run for political office um, Mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff. Um, And, like, maybe kind of going into, like, that public policy area. That's kind of the vague recollections that I have of what I wanted to do in high school. But, um, yeah. Do you remember, like, anyone... Like, how did you really learn about that? Because I know, like, at my age, I wouldn't, like, even know, like, where to start with a career like that. In terms of, like, going into politics or something like that? Yeah. Yeah, so I think in grade 10 or 11, I went on kind of an exchange to Ottawa called the Forum for Young Canadians. So you kind of spent a a week in Ottawa with kids across the country. Uh, So I met, you know, people from the Northwest Territories, Ontario, Quebec, the Maritimes, and and other provinces and and territories. And spending that time in Ottawa, meeting members of parliament and senators and public servants and that kind of stuff, it, it I think kind of got me thinking about what kind of career that could have been i'd always been mm-hmm. interested in like politics as as a student and i'd been a youth member in the progressive conservative association of alberta when i was i think 16 was the the, the age that you could start buying a membership and so that's kind of i think where i kind of got started on my my political journey and and it kind of went went from there um, so when you were in high school, did you take any courses that kind of led you down that path? Um, I took like, I think like a couple of like law and society classes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I also was really interested in like when I was in school, they're called CTS courses, career technology. Um, so it was like um, some computer graphics and like some of those courses. But I also then quickly realized that I was not very good at graphic design. <laughs> I like I know for our like for our school, there's really not like a whole lot of options outside of like math and science. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. think like yeah, 
I think I think at at Bonus High we had you know like the the normal ones like mechanics and cosmetology and um, mm-hmm. like foods and and I think like the career technology was I think like a bit different compared to some other high schools but I most of my options like I think I did shop class um, and then I think I also did some career and technology classes but I didn't do like any mechanics or um, food or, or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, when you were in high school, what were sort of your hobbies and your interests outside of school? Um, oh, outside of school, what did I do? I did a, um, I did a couple of, of years of cadets in army mm-hmm. cadets. Um, and I'm trying to think if, if I still would have been in scouts when I was in high school, I don't think I would have been, but before, like in junior high, I had was in Cubs and Scouts and like some of those, that outdoor stuff. And then some of my extracurriculars in high school was like student council and yearbook club and model UN club and, and some of that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. those were sometimes my after school activities were some of the student clubs that I was involved in. Do you think those like were related to the career you ended up going down? I think so. I think the model UN mm-hmm. side of things was probably definitely kind of on that side of like public service, public policy, um, government side of things. I think that probably definitely had an impact on kind of what what I wanted to do and what I ended up doing outside of high school. Um, once you reached the end of high school, where what were your post-secondaries plans? So I actually took a year off um, when I graduated. I graduated in 2007 from high school, and I took a year off because I really didn't know what mm-hmm. I wanted to do. So in that year off, I worked downtown, um, went out to Ottawa and did a couple of trips, and then I, and then I applied to Mount Royal University in their policy studies program. And I started there in fall of 2008, I think. And mm-hmm. I did one semester at Mount Royal and realized that the program was not for me, largely because I had to upgrade my math. Um, yeah. I graduated with applied math um, mm-hmm. and you needed pure math. And so I started to do an upgrade course and I was like, this is not for me. So um, I quickly dropped out of that program and went back um, to work to kind of then figure out what I wanted to do next. Um, how was your experience taking the year off? I know, like, I don't think it's as common anymore for people to take that gap year kind of to explore. They're just like thrown straight into university. Yeah. When, when I graduated, I was 17. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I mean, 17, 18 going into university, I think is still super young, especially when you don't yeah. know what you want to do. And in hindsight, like, there's a lot of other programs that I would have been interested in. Like I would have maybe thought about like communications or public relations or like maybe an architect or like a design program or something like that. There was just like so much out there that I really didn't know about. And, Mm -hmm. and I'm, I really think it's a good idea to consider taking some time off school um, from between junior high or between high school and, and university just so that you can see what's all out there because 
between, you know, polytechnical schools and trade schools and universities and that kind of stuff. There's, there's so many programs out there, whether they're a two-year diploma or, or four-year undergraduate and then going in for, for graduate degrees and, and doctorates after that, depending what, what you're interested in. But there, there's mm-hmm. so much out there. I think, I think it's really hard to expect someone who's 17, 18, 19 yeah. to, to have an understanding about what, what you might be looking at doing. I think it's hard to, as a grade 12 student, like you're still going to school, so you're still expected to like have all your homework done and keep working at school, but you're also in that position where like you're applying to schools and you're trying to figure out like what you want to do with the rest of your life. Yeah. And I mean, and, yeah. and, and, and right now, you know, I, I think the average careers that a person has is I think anywhere from like four to six careers over their yeah. lifetime when people like our grandparents, you know, it was one career, two, maybe Mm -hmm. Um, it was, you know, they graduated, they started that job and that's what they did um, until they retired. And and in this day and age, that's so uncommon to hear someone staying in one career for longer than 10, 15 years, if you're lucky. Well, this podcast has made like really made me realize like how many times I'm going to change my mind. Mm-hmm. And that it's like still all going to work out. Like most of the guests didn't um, stick with like the first program that they applied to and like definitely didn't stick to the same career. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you had said you applied to the program and then you ended up dropping out. Yeah. Did you apply to another one after that? Yeah. I then, I then in the fall of 2009, I went to SAIT, the Southern Alberta Institute of Technology, and did a two-year diploma there in, it was called Administrative Information Management, so kind of like office administration. And mm-hmm. so I did my two-year diploma then, and then graduated from SAIT in 2011. Um, and my intent was I'd been working at Shell Canada kind of during the summers that I was at SAIT and before I went to SAIT, my plan was to go back to Shell. They were a big company, lots of opportunities for, you know, admin assistants and administrators and, and that kind of stuff. And that also didn't happen. I took a totally different career trajectory after I graduated in, in April of 2011. So once you graduated, um, where did you go for so I actually went and worked on the the leadership campaign for Allison Redford, who was running to be the leader of the Progressive Conservative Party of Alberta, um, and then to to become the premier. They were there were I think about six candidates that were running to replace Ed Stelmack, who was retiring, mm-hmm. um, and she was seen as a dar- as a long shot candidate. That you know she had been the Minister of Justice and Attorney General from 2008 to 2011, and you know the likely her likelihood of her winning was was very small. Um, you know, the, based on the pundits and the polls, uh, she ended up winning that that leadership race on on the second ballot. Um, that was, I think, October first or second, twenty eleven. She became mm-hmm. the premier, and I then went to work in the office of the premier at the age of. 20, 21 years old. So um, that was really kind of where my my career kind of started. Did that start because you had like already had that association 
with the Conservative Party? Yeah, I, I'd been a longtime volunteer and I had mm-hmm. worked in in Allison's constituency office when she was the Minister of Justice and, and Attorney General and she was the MLA for, for Calgary Elbow. So her and I already knew each other before she was running and and friends and, and people that I knew from my time in politics were working on her leadership campaign. And the platform that she was running on really spoke to me and and I believed in, you know, very much in, in, in the vision that she was putting forward. And, and I also thought it was time, you know, that, that Alberta had uh, a female premier. So mm-hmm. those were kind of the reasons why, why I had backed her and, and why I had worked for her. And uh, yeah, and then after that, I spent a couple couple of months in, in her office and then went to work for the Minister of Agriculture and, and Rural Development. So I, I moved to Edmonton. Um, the first time moving out uh, of my parents' house was mm-hmm. to Edmonton and in a place that I'd only visited a, a handful of times. I really didn't know anyone there. So it was a very different, um, it was very different to move to a job where I really hadn't, had never thought that I would go and work and in a place that I didn't really know anyone outside of the handful of people that were around my age and had also moved up to the legislature to, to take a job with, uh, with other cabinet ministers and, and other positions within the, within the PC governments. Was there a lot of like younger people working with you? There was, um, you know, there, there was kind of the, the old guard, those that had been around the legislature for a number of years and, and were in mm-hmm. the chief of staff role. But then there was also, oh, I want to say half a dozen, eight of us, you know, kind of young guns that were, you know, kind of cut our teeth on, on, on the 2011 leadership campaign and then went into the building. And, and some of those folks are, are still working in politics or now they're working for um, consulting firms as lobbyists or government relation professionals and everything like that. But we all kind of really started the same way by really doing kind of the, the grunt work on a, on a mm-hmm. leadership campaign and then, and then going into the building as, as special assistants or, or executive assistants. So this is, you definitely think like it's more experience over um, where like some jobs you require like even a graduate degree where this was definitely more like you had that experience and that connection? Yeah, most most of my jobs um, that I have been hired for has based, been based on uh, my experience and, and the people that I know. I would say mm-hmm. it's less more about my educational background um, and more about the experience that I bring to the organization and to the role mm-hmm. based on the, the previous jobs that I've held. I think that's kind of a unique like position to be in today, whereas like there's so many careers that are requiring more and more education. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it really is because you know I I have a diploma and then I have a certificate from Mount Royal in in public relations, mm-hmm. uh, but like I I don't have an undergraduate degree um, uh, or anything like that. So yeah, I think it was really just kind of a uh, a right time. And, and it just things just kind of fell into place with with some of the opportunities that that I was given over over the last decade. So my next question was actually going to be, um, what level of post secondary did you complete? So you had the diploma and then the certificate as well. Yeah, 
Yeah, and the certificate was like a continuing education certificate from from Mount Royal, and and that was mm-hmm. really just because I found myself doing a lot of communications and media relations, and again, it was just um, experience that I had learned over yeah. the years, um, and it was something that that I really enjoyed to this day, both the media relations side of things and and also the communication side of things. So it just was it, it was a natural kind of progression to go and get that certificate from Mount Royal. Um, how has your career developed since entering that field? I mean, I, when I entered SATE, I never really like considered nonprofit. I thought, oh, you know, oil and Calgary being an oil and gas city. Mm-hmm. Um, that was really kind of the only area that was on my on my trajectory about you know what I considered as as employment fields and then oil and gas yeah oil and gas yeah. not really you know nonprofit and, and now that mm-hmm. I've been in in nonprofit for the last six seven years I guess um, just having a much better understanding about the depth and breadth that nonprofit has um, and all the organizations from, you know, arts and culture to human services to social services um, and everything else in between and, and how big that sector is and, and how important it is to, to our society um, to give people the supports that they need, but also to give people, you know, like um, recreation and the theater and music mm-hmm. and, and that kind of stuff. So it's been a, a real um, eye opener for me to the point that, you know, I now serve on a couple of nonprofit boards in addition to working in the nonprofit sector myself, just because I, I see the value and importance that nonprofit plays in our society. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to explain like what your day to day at work looks like? Sure. Every day is different. So mm-hmm. I I lead a team of um, three staff members and I report to a volunteer board of directors of eight individuals. And my organization, Heritage Calgary, has a, a, a mandate to advise the city of Calgary and city council on heritage related matters. So um, like yesterday, for example, was our weekly staff meeting. And then every two weeks, I have one-on-one meetings with my staff uh, just to understand, like, you know, what what are they working on? What can I help them with? Are they, um, do they have any challenges with things they're currently working on? Is there anything I can help them with? Um, it allows them to kind of bounce ideas off of, off of me um, and see how I can support them. Um, Today was um, another one-on-one. And then this afternoon, I'm going over our new group benefits plan for my staff um, and that kind of stuff. So every day is different. I, you know, I have have a lot of meetings uh, between the city and and various heritage stakeholders and and organizations and, and that kind of stuff. And we're currently working on a on a proposal to the city to look at naming, uh, renaming, naming and commemoration in the city of Calgary, given you know recent Black Lives Matters and mm-hmm. I'll No More and the Me Too movement and just that whole sense of reconciliation and, and mm-hmm. how do we deal with the naming of sites and, and why do we name things? So that's kind of the what we're currently working on. But yeah, every day really really is different. Some days. Uh, are much busier than others and and some days it's kind of like a catch-up day where I can get caught up on 
everything that I missed this week because I've just been in back-to-back meetings. I actually wanted to ask, like, what role, like, um, like those heritage organizations are playing today with, like, the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's been about reframing how we tell our history and our heritage. Mm-hmm. You know, Indigenous peoples have been here for, for thousands of years, yet, you know, when most cities talk about themselves, they only really talk about, you know, when, when white settlers yeah. came and, and, and colonized, you know, the, the area and, and that kind of stuff. So it's, 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 it's recontextualizing those stories and talking about the people that have been here for thousands of years and, and how they lived and, and how they worked the land and, and that kind of stuff. And then also, you know, like the story of, of John Ware, who was a black cowboy in, in the Calgary area, had a, a ranch down in Longview. Um, and there was just recently a, a documentary that was done by him, by a renowned documentary um, filmmaker, historian, author, um, Cheryl Fogo. And, you know, telling that story of, of John Ware and how he overcame you know, racism and, and what he had mm-hmm. to deal with, you know, as someone who, who was a black cowboy um, in the turn of the century when, you know, um, it was really a, a white person's world and how he was able to to work through that. And like the history of Edmonton and, you know, their history of, of white supremacy and like the Ku Klux Klan yeah. um, and, and, and how that factored in and then the impact of residential schools on people of indigenous peoples who lived in Western Canada and the mm-hmm. reading of the reconciliation bridge from the Langevin bridge, you know, Hector Langevin was, was an architect of, of the residential schools and, and renaming that bridge in Calgary was a very symbolic act to mm-hmm. show the people of Treaty 7 that the, the city, you know, the, the capital C corporation city of Calgary, but the overall city of Calgary is really serious about reconciliation and what that means to to the people of Treaty Seven and you know the the current Calgarians that that call Calgary home. Yeah, I think we're just beginning like to start. Oh yeah, even just with acknowledgement. Yeah. Yes, with the whole yeah. idea of, of that land acknowledgement and, and understanding about you know the people that lived here before we did. Um, you know this this recon- this journey of reconciliation is really just beginning from the you know calls to action from the truth and reconciliation commission and mm-hmm. the inquiry of missing and, and murdered indigenous women and girls all of that is really kind of coming together for a country like canada who still really is very young as a country yeah. only 100 and, um, 153 years old as a nation and and there's there's a lot that's happened in those 153 years and and a lot of it we really can't be proud of so it, it's really about yeah i think like stories especially with everything happening in the states right now like a lot of canadians sit back and say like well at least i'm not american and like i think we still have so much work to put in and we really like aren't in a position to be saying that no and I, I think we have a lot of work to do on yeah. the reconciliation side of things, and, and and there still is a lot of a lot of work to be done on all levels of government, but also post secondaries and and K yeah. institutions, and basically all, our entire society. Um, there's still a lot of work to be done. Well, as a grade twelve student, I can't really remember like 
it ever being part of like curriculum. Mm-hmm. I think I had a couple teachers who like were particularly passionate about it. So they made sure we like had the opportunity to learn about it. But yeah. like without those individuals, like I don't think I really would have learned about it at all. No. And I, you know, thinking back, I don't really recall if we learned about residential schools yeah, and the impact that those had on Indigenous peoples. Um, I think I really only kind of learned about that afterwards when I finished school and, you know, the, the residential schools inquiry started and it was like, oh my God, like how, how did, how did this happen and, and how is it not a part of, of our curriculum? So I, I think there's, there's a lot of work to be done on curriculum redesign and ensuring mm-hmm. that the proper stories are told and it's not just this whitewashed yeah. approach to to our history i think there's like the last one closed in 1997 i think Mm -hmm. so it's just like so mind-blowing like how recent yes yeah that all of this is and the magnitude of of indigenous peoples who attended those schools and and the impacts that it had not only on them but their their future generations of their families and and, and and their nations and, and, and everything like that. Yeah, it's crazy. I think we're just now beginning to see just like how big the impact is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have that... you seen like a lot of pushback with like those acts of like reconciliation? You know, that's there there's been some. There has mm-hmm. been some, like when you know the the renaming of the of the reconciliation bridge. You know, there mm-hmm. there are always those people that are like, well, you know, it's it's history. Like, if we just yeah. changed everything, then how would we know where we came from? And and I think it's important that when you do that, you're explaining why something is being changed. Like, it's one thing to change, yeah. the name, but I think it's important to tell why you're changing that name and. And that's why we worked quite closely with the city and the Calgary Aboriginal Urban Affairs Committee to tell the story of who Hector Langevin was, the impact of residential schools, and mm-hmm. why reconciliation is so important. But I think even, you know, in the summer with the the protest in Montreal and the toppling of the Sir Johnny MacDonald's statue mm-hmm. um, and even in calgary you know we have a park named the james short park it was named after a lawyer who was extremely racist against the chinese community mm-hmm. and that park sits basically right beside chinatown um and that was members of the chinese community coming forward to the city saying you know it's not right for a yeah. man who you know who didn't want chinatown to exist at all, or even where in its current location, you know, how, how can we pay tribute and, and homage to a man that, that didn't, didn't, did not want our community to exist? And I think when you read some of the things that these people have said or done, it's really hard to defend um, places or, or things being named after people. Um, and so I think we're going to see a lot more of that, of things being renamed um, to you know, indigenous names or mm-hmm. women or people of color or those marginalized people that had an impact at that time. 
um, like even in Calgary, you know, the um, Annie Gale, the the first the first female alderman in the British Empire, um, was elected in Calgary. Um, you know, and yeah, you know, there's a school named after Annie Gale. But if you ask the average Calgarian, they probably wouldn't know that she was the first female alderman elected in mm-hmm. the British Empire. Um, or or someone, you know, like um, uh, there, there's just so many people yeah. that that have not been recognized and and we're hoping through this work um around naming and and commemoration to really have a a good look about you know how things are named and recognizing that you know a lot of things are named after white caucasian males Mm -hmm. so this is obviously like a really important part of what you do um yeah yeah is there like a lot of collaboration when you're like you're going about this? Yeah, like kind of what does the process look like when you're renaming something? So we we and and that's that's the work that we're really looking at doing. Like what is the process to mm-hmm. rename something? Because um a process really doesn't exist right now. So yeah. that's kind of the work that we're looking at doing is to engage with a diverse number of stakeholders to have that conversation of like, how does renaming work? Um, you know, do we start to identify sites that have problem, problematic names or figures associated with them? And do we start just kind of work through like, the, uh, you know, site by site to look at renaming them and contextualizing like why this person, what they did was harmful to a certain community or to a subsect of our of our society um, and that kind of stuff on the reconciliation bridge that was collaborating with the, 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 the nations of Treaty 7, the Calgary Aboriginal Urban Affairs Committee, and then on the James Short renaming, that's really working with the Chinese Calgary, Chinese Calgary Chinese Chinese community mm-hmm. um, to understand like what is a more appropriate name for yeah. that site. Yeah. So I think those were all of my questions. Um, this was super interesting. I didn't really realize like the depths of like what went on at like a nonprofit like that. Yeah, you know, and, and, and that's that's the other thing that, you know, I don't think people necessarily understand about, you know, how how complex you yeah. know, nonprofits are. Like, you know, yes, they don't um, exist, you know, to make profit, but they're very similar to, you know, for-profit companies where, you know, mm-hmm. they report to a board of directors, they sell staff that they have to look after, you know, they have a strategic plan, they have a mission and vision, um, you know, they're... They're they're really fulfilling whatever their their strategic strategic objectives are, um, and it all kind of depends on on what that that nonprofit is. Whether you know it's like the YMCA um, who run recreation facilities, or like the YWCA's who have supports and programs for for women and, and mm-hmm. children who you know are escaping domestic violence or 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 that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I'm involved in a, in a nonprofit, uh, the Calgary Military Family Resource Center, and I'm the board chair there. And we provide supports to to um, 
family members of of serving military members. So whether they're they're regular force or reservists, um, and the unique challenges that come with being a, a spouse or a partner or, or a child of, of a military family member. So there, there's such a, a, a wide area of nonprofits mm-hmm. that people can get involved with, either as you know a volunteer or or as a board member. Um, there, there's so many areas that depending on, on what your passion and, and interests are, you can probably find a nonprofit that, uh, that fulfills those interests and that, and that passion. Mm-hmm. 